Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Hi gang. Nice to have you back again. This is going to be the second part of our Val Luton series. Third part? Really? Zoe's signaling to me. Wow. We have a lot to say about Val Luton because his career and life were really, really interesting, and especially his early films. Now, as we go along, the later films are, frankly, less interesting, and, and we will zip through them a little more quickly. But these early films are fascinating, psychologically and artistically. So we're really glad that you're back, and uh, let's get going. I think where we left off last time, we had to finish talking about, let's see, we did The Leopard Man and The Seventh Victim. And so now we are coming into another really great film, The Ghost Ship. And The Ghost Ship was filmed in 1940 shit. 1940 shit. I think this is one that was a surprise hit for both of us. Yeah, and it was filmed in 1943. So we are still right at the very beginning. I mean, I can't believe how many films Val Luton did in 1943. There's four films, I believe, we counted up last time. And so The Ghost Ship is really an interesting one. Now, I did say that I kind of thought, at least with these first ones, there's always kind of a theme. And sometimes subtle, sometimes not. This is not a subtle theme. This is a theme about authority and power. And believe me, they tell you several times in several speeches that that's what this is about. But the inference from the story is that power and authority, certainly at the absolute level that a captain on a ship will have, is corrupting. So... Absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely, is the saying, and um, this film definitely interprets that. The plot has a lot of moving parts, a lot like The Seventh Victim, so I'll try to create the skeleton for for you, and then um, we might fill in with some other details, but I don't want to get this to be confused with all the back and forth and machination. So essentially, the story is that uh, there's a captain, and it's played by Richard Dix, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Richard Dix later. He's a very interesting person and and an old-timey, successful actor, although he really isn't that old. He's in his 50s, which from my vantage point is not that old. (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, he seems, I think he seems a lot older in this, probably maybe because he's playing a very authoritarian character, also because in real life he was an alcoholic, so that kind of ages you as well. Anyway, he is the master, the captain of a ship. It's a it's a merchant ship. This is not the Navy. And a young officer, played by Russell Wade, who is sort of the Dennis O'Keefe of this movie in that he's kind of tall and young and semi-good looking and not very interesting at all, other than the predicament he finds him in. As a person, he's not interesting. Anyway, he joins the crew of the ship, the Altair, and he admires this captain and he's you know a young officer so he's looking for a mentor somebody to bring him along in his profession and they set sail and what happens after they set sail are a a number of very concerning episodes where people die people get into danger and it all seems to stem back to the captain's decisions the captain ultimately seems to even though he's got ultimate authorities, he's supposed to have a lot of experience, he seems to be a screw-up. Somebody who really is not a very good captain. He makes a lot of bad decisions. And as that develops, he seems to be more and more 
crazy, essentially. He's power mad. He seems to want to assert his authority in an arbitrary way just to prove that he's got the authority, and this puts people in danger. And so this young seaman ends up, or the young officer, I guess seaman is an actual rank, this young officer begins to question him and buck him, and that puts him in danger of his life. And that is, that's ultimately the, uh, the thematic thread throughout the story. So one of the first things that happens, which is very concerning, is that they're at sea, and they don't appear to have a doctor on board, and there is a man who has an, uh, an attack of appendicitis. So that's critical. they got to get that appendix out. So the captain is going to do the operation to try to save the guy, and he, in a very good scene, I think, he clutches. He can't do it. He's afraid. He's unable. He's and so this young, this young seaman, Tom Mar- Marion is his name on the, on the boat. Uh, so Tom takes over, and he successfully completes the operation. So then after that, the whole deal with the captain, he does a whole song and dance, chuck and jive about why he didn't do it or he couldn't do it. I don't even really remember the details of it. I just remember it had to do about his authority. He made it sound like it was the wise thing to do, that it was the, what a captain should do. And he did it, you know, whatever he did was the right way. And the young um, officer is willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And he believes in him. And he tells everybody who knows, don't, you know, just say the captain did the operation. Don't say I did it. So he backs him up in, in the lie. And then uh, then from there, we start to see things like mind games that the captain is playing, right? There's that one thing with a the hook. There's like, it's such a great mm-hmm. visual. There's this giant hook that they use to hook the pallets and the, and the cargo to pull it up onto the ship and put it in the hold. I think we've all seen these in movies, if not in real life. So this hook is swinging around on the deck and a storm is coming up and the wind is blowing and this is very dangerous obviously (laughs) and everyone can see this and Tom can see it and he goes to the captain I guess he has to get permission for what he wants to do which is to anchor the hook you know to connect it to the ship so it doesn't swing around and the captain kind of is like well, no, don't do it. Don't, no, you're not allowed to do that. And so he doesn't, he follows the order. And then the hook, does the hook actually kill somebody? I think so. Yeah, it knocks him off in, into the water. I think, I think multiple people die by the hook. And um, the captain then turns around and blames Tom. because and, and Tom's like, what? You know, this doesn't make any sense. This is this is a mind game. And, and this is where he just begins to suspect. You kind of see that, but he's still totally behind the captain. And well, which is, you know, the discipline at, the, at sea. You, you just support the authority of the captain. But the captain has this whole weird speech about authority and power. And that. And somehow he was teaching him a lesson about being a, an officer. And, and then there's another incident where a, a different, or a member of the crew, I should say, goes to the captain and says, you know, you really should go in and to uh, shore and get some more crew. You need some new crew here and like questioning his authority in a way. And the captain says to him, you know, there are captains who might hold this against you, Louis. Then later we see Louis in this chamber and that hook, so this is the other hook, there's a big chain, gigantic chain, where 
that you when they pull it up the chain spirals down and circles into this room and it's like i mean it's gigantic and he's in there trying to you know help bring it in and and put it in the right place and then there's a door where he will then exit and the captain's that's me whistling uh jauntily kind of walking down the hatchway and he i say i don't think there's any question about this he knows that Louie's in that room and he just da, 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 and he just shuts the door and latches it so he's locked in it's actually a very creepy scene it's very creepy because he's so really like like me he's yeah. just so easy he's not creeping it's not like he seems to have any concerns or he that oh what he's doing is wrong he's just la 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 and that that makes it super creepy and Louie gets crushed to death by the chain over something so small because he really wasn't bucking the captain. He wasn't really trying to undermine his authority. He was trying, like you do in any good organization, to contribute and, and you know, fairly forcefully put his point across, but he never uh, showed any indication, I thought, of being... Mutinous. Mutinous at all. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's another guy who dies or gets injured because he's singing a song that somehow the captain interprets as questioning his authority. Even though you're listening to it going, not really. Was that Sir Lancelot? Sir Lancelot is in this. He was the one we talked about in, but a pretty large part, I thought, in I Walked with the Zombie. And again, you can see that uh, Val Luton and his team are trying to give, you know, certain uh, performers some kind of part. And Sir Lancelot is in here as a crew member, as a seaman, and he sings a song on the deck for the other sailors. And I believe this is why the, the hook incident occurs. Basically, it just keeps devolving to the point where Tom, first of all, he's frightened for himself. And so he decides to get off the ship. And he goes, they, go, they uh, dock at San Sebastian, which, I don't know if you noticed, is the island that is in I Walked With a Zombie. Oh, yeah. That was San yeah, Sebastian yeah. as well. And they dock. And he goes to the courts and he, you know, says, this captain is acting uh, in a way that's endangering the crew. And everybody's like, oh, no, we know this guy. Like, how dare you accuse him? Not only that, but the actual crew who are, were put in danger, they come in and they testify on behalf of the captain. So the, the entire accusation is scuttled, to use a nautical term. <laughs> Scuppered man. And the captain walks out, and of course Tom knows he can't go back. Now he's in danger. Yeah. Yeah. He's so he decides to stay on San Sebastian, and he meets with the for a, a little while with Ellen Roberts, who is played by Edith Barrett, who we have met before. She was the mother in I Walk with a Zombie. Uh huh. The woman who was playing, who was like thirty-four, and playing somebody who was like in her fifties. Um, here she's young and beautiful, and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> And uh, again, we'll talk a little bit about Edith later. She has an interesting connection with Vincent Price and, uh, you know, but he meets with her and they have a connection. They have a real connection. So essentially this mirrors a relationship the captain has had. He's got a a very close woman friend. Uh, It seems like he could probably be in love with her. Um, He could have been, but he loved the sea too much. And he, Classic. Yeah. So that was that's also part of the theme. Is it that he loves the sea too much, or maybe he loves the authority and control he has at sea too much 
to ever give it up for something as human and as vulnerable as being in love with anybody. So it seems like that's part of the theme is that Tom is normal. He is in love with this woman. Yeah, he wants to continue his career, but he, it doesn't sound, sound like he would give up um, the opportunity of being married and having a family and you know, being in love. And, and be so monomaniacal about the sea and you know being in control and being in power. That's one of the themes that comes up through this as well. Anyway, in the weird twist, the ship's gonna sail, and we're all like, well, we're only halfway through the movie and Tom's not getting back on the ship. I wonder, you know, what what's gonna happen here? And in this nightmarish second half, Tom is unconscious. He ends up drinking the crew, not knowing that he's not coming back. They grab him and take him and put him on the ship, on the boat, because they think they're, they're uh, doing him a, a solid by getting him back on so he doesn't miss the boat and then get in trouble. And he back and he wakes up. He's like, oh, shit, I'm on the boat again. Right. And then this, and then this whole weird, like, night, it's like a nightmare, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where the captain starts doing things that are clearly intended to threaten him and harm him. And then he's trying to save himself and nobody on the boat believes him. For example, the captain has the lock on his cabin door removed so Tom can no longer lock his door. What what a nightmare is that to sleep and know that anything could happen to you in the middle of the night. And there's a, there's a gun involved and just all kinds of weird stuff. And... Um, Ultimately, okay, so here's the ending. Ultimately, there is a fight where the captain is going to kill Tom in his bed. And prior to this, the crew started to get the reality of the situation and that the captain was out to get Tom. Um, They found out that the captain had lied about Tom being on the boat because people were inquiring, where's Tom? Where's Tom? We can't find him. Is he on the boat? And he's going, no, he's not here. So that way he can get rid of him and no one would even know because nobody knew he was on the boat. And the the crew kind of cops to this and they have a big fight. And in the end, the captain gets killed and everything is okay. So that's the the plot. Now we can go back and fill in the juicy details. (laughs) That is a long plot. Yeah, you highlighted a few of my favorite scenes being the striking visual metaphor of the hook that swings around the boat and then the scene in the anchor chamber. I think that was the chain of the anchor that slowly fills up and crushes that guy to death. That's very, that that was the one that really got, like I came away with being like, ooh. I felt that way too. Yeah. It's amazing how effective it was. I think really of all the films of Val Luton, this one actually makes me feel the sense of physical danger more than any other. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. So it was, a, I think it was like a surprise hit for both of us. One, it's not one that we've heard about before. Two, we just, I don't know, we didn't expect it to be very good for some example. The quality of the film itself, like the quality of the, the copy that we watched wasn't great. Um, so it wasn't as beautiful as like I walked with a zombie or anything, but then it ended up being really gripping anyway. Well, I also had an issue with the acting at first. I didn't get what was going on. So once I knew what was happening, I thought back to the beginning, the opening, and the way the actors were acting. I was, oh, that's why they were doing that. Well, that's why that seems so wooden. That's why, okay. Now I could see that it wasn't bad acting. It was them setting the stage and trying to be psychologically true to what was going on. You know, um, in particular, I would say the captain. 
the captain um, played by Richard Dix, Captain Will Stone is the name of the character. And he is so, he seems so goddamn stiff in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, young man, I will be your mentor. And and he just kind of seemed like jolly in a weird way. And, and stiff and wooden. And it wasn't until later I realized that he was doing, he was playing an insane person trying to pretend to be sane. And then once I got that, I went, oh, well, that's kind of good. I mean, you know, might not be a Daniel Day-Lewis performance of it, you know, but it certainly was, it was good for the, especially for the time. I thought it was pretty good. And I, as the movie went on, I began to become more of a fan of Richard Dix. Dix was an old, really kind of an old-timey actor. He was a, a big star or a biggish star in the silent era. He was like in Cecil B. DeMille's silent version of the Ten Commandments. And he ended up winning an Oscar in 1931 for his performance in Cimarron, which is a a Western. And I always think of Richard Dix as a Western actor. But in fact, he he really had kind of a broad career. He played in a lot of different films, drawing room comedies. He played in dramas and... But he did quite a few westerns. He was, uh, I don't know, I think it must be his face. If you see his face, it's kind of a stony face, kind of chiseled stony face. His acting was not the broad, uh, silent film strokes. It was very much of the sound era. And he had a good, decent voice, and uh, so um, I, I was pretty impressed with his depiction of this madman and the way he built it, and slowly allowed it to emerge. Uh, One of the things about this film that made me think, made me think of a later film, and I wondered if Humphrey Bogart had been, seen this film and been influenced by the performance, when Humphrey Bogart plays the crazy um, captain in The Cane Mutiny. Hmm. The Cane Mutiny is a film where there's a mutiny on a boat because the captain is crazy, and a lot of the set, a lot of the, really key points in the film is the trial of the captain and the way you watch Humphrey Bogart play this captain who at first seems very reasonable and he's defending himself and as it goes on he becomes more and more crazy and you see the emergence of his paranoia and there's the whole thing about the strawberries the strawberries I haven't seen that yeah. one. <laughs> no, it's it, it's good. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I I thought his performance was very good, and I thought of it while I was watching Dix. So I wondered if maybe Bogart had actually seen this and been influenced, or maybe there's some I don't know. Uh, I haven't read anything about it, but it, they just seem similar. Anyway, Dix was um, he was in real life an alcoholic, and a lot of these actors are. It's very interesting. You know, he had uh, a ranch and a lot of money and everything, and he also liked to collect weird things. Apparently, he liked to kind of collect chickens and turkeys, and he raised like thousands of them. So it wasn't necessarily like a business, like where he sold them or like was a rancher, but he just liked having chickens and turkeys. <laughs> and he collected pipes. He had thousands of pipes Whoa. that he collected, which I thought a bit eccentric. Yeah, yeah, quite quite an eccentric guy. And he just, you know, made a lot of money with his career as uh, doing all these different kinds of films. And in fact, one time, I think his most interesting co-star was a film that he co-starred with, Ace the Wonder Dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he had a crazy career. And uh, very late in his career, he did a series of films called The Whistler. I've seen one of them. It was pretty good. And The Whistler films basically star Richard Dix in each episode 
playing a com- completely different uh, character. So it's an anthology series of mystery stories where he always stars in it, but different person, different character, different story. So essentially it would be like an anthology TV show today. And they would do, they would show these in the theaters as a kind of like a serial, Hmm. uh, uh, like, I don't know, like a lot of films, like the Nancy Drew films that we've been watching where they're about an hour long and they would come out every so often and and show them. So I I recommend that. Give give them a try. They're pretty good. Anyway, his, his performance struck me, especially in comparison to Wade Russell, who I, I just, I just found him to be, I mean, he's fine, but he's really more of a placeholder. The young guy. Yeah thrown about by forces outside of him. Yeah, and and he didn't have any particular characteristics or anything that were very interesting. He was more a receptacle for the captain's long speeches about power and authority and asserting it and you know and the responsibilities that come with it and that kind of thing. And I guess it worked though because even though he wasn't an interesting character, he didn't need to be because the peril he was in was so dreamlike and so it, w- it was just the kind of archetypal peril of nobody believing you sort of like talking into the wind or talking and nobody can hear you and being in a situation where you, you're powerless and how do you save yourself Franz kafka in the trial you know? <laughs> maybe yeah and so i thought that was very very good and Edith Barrett, she doesn't play a really large part in this. She really is more of, of kind of a trope, of a symbol of love, a symbol of normalcy. I mean, she plays it well, and she's you know likable and interesting, but she's really more of a symbolic character as to what the alternative could be to being this person who only craves authority and control over others. I do like her as an actor. She didn't have a very long career. She didn't do a lot of films. She did do that other one with Val Luton and I Walked with a Zombie. And she was married to Vincent Price, as I think I've said before. And I thought it was interesting. I, I thought they, they had one son together. His name was Vincent Barrett Price, V.B. Price. He's a poet. Oh, okay. He's still alive. He's in his 70s. Hmm. Um, he's a poet. He was, he's an environmentalist. He's a human rights activist. So sounds like he's a really cool guy. I should check out his poetry and see what I think of it. Yeah, you should. I was I was thinking you should, uh, because we do like Vincent Price a lot at this house, and so I'd be interested in hearing what you think of his son's work. Price himself, Vincent, was a poet as well. He was an, a great gourmet cook. In fact, uh, you want to talk about the cookbook? Oh yeah, to to, to go off on a tangent, um, my partner and I have been spending time together while we're in quarantine and. Um, their family has a, a cookbook gifted to them by Vincent Price of his recipes and everything. It's his cookbook that, of recipes that he collected from like famous hotels and restaurants around the world. Um, and it's pretty fun and a lot of it's extremely 70s, lots of like aspic and like <laughs> gelatin and ketchup and mayo and tartare and you know, whatever. Um, but we made a coco vin from that book, and it was very tasty. Yeah. So to pull us back to the movie and to Val Luton, um, going back down that tunnel again, we'll go back to Edith Barrett, and the last thing I want to say about her, which I think is interesting, is Zoe and I are preparing a series for you on Jane Eyre. And we are, read, of course, read Jane Eyre, and we're watching every film adaptation that we can find of it. And in the, the very famous one from 1944 with Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine, Edith Barrett plays Mrs. Fairfax. I've forgotten about that. And again, she plays a much older woman than she actually was. Which I don't understand. She's quite a lovely woman, and 
Yeah, it's just kind of weird. Typecast like outside of her type. <laughs> outside of her age, yeah. yeah, way outside of her age. Anyway, I did enjoy seeing her um, a lot in this film. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really get into um, the the part that I find really interesting about this movie, which is like the, the character of the. Um, the this, mute. The mute sailor. Finn the mute is what he is titled as. And the actor's name is? Skelton Nags. Okay. And he's a British actor. Gotcha. Yeah. He's very, he's very much one of those like Finn kind of sickly looking guys. Or he's got a very he gnarled that. face. He has a face. He's a, he's a very short man. But he has the face of a boxer, don't you think? He looks like he could have been a boxer. He's a very kind of gnarled face. Very great face for character actor. Yeah, or like a, like an outlaw or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's got one of those faces. He's a, a side character. He's peripheral member of the crew. He doesn't even interact with the main characters throughout most of the film. But for some reason, it's narrated by him. Um, so he's a mute sailor, but then he's got the voiceover narration about at the beginning. And then sort of in the middle, he begins to suspect that the captain is trying to murder Tom. And then... It's never really clear his motivations to help Tom or anything like that. But at the in the finale, he's the one who kills the captain. He figures out that the captain is going to go to Tom's room to murder him in the night. And he hides in the room with a knife and ends up knifing the captain in like a, a pitch black struggle. And that's so interesting because he is the, even though Tom is the ostensible hero of the story, it's Finn who really is the hero. He, he sacrifices his life doesn't he? Yeah, I be- yeah, I believe they maybe kill each other simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. So he sacrifices his life for another. He so and then Tom can go off in his glorious whatever life going forward, but you know, Finn he's such, he's such an interesting character. He's always around. He never makes a sound, yet he's the voice of the of the narrator. So he actually narrates though he can't speak in the film. That's a very yeah. interesting way to do it. So and when you ask me about themes, that's what—that's the thing, the big thing that was standing out for me that I'm kind of trying to formulate or figure out what the theme is. Yeah, yeah. If there is one, or if it's just really cool, it I'm, could be. It could be like a rhetorical device, you know, one of those rhetorical vice devices that that one uses that d- doesn't—it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it creates more impact to what is said. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I mean, I think if we were talking about, if we wanted to stretch it a little bit, he's the character who is sort of, he's like little and weird and he's mute and everything. And so even though he's not like bullied by the other crew members or anything, he is kind of like the most oppressed, the least paid attention to. He's had a hard life. He has a disability, you know, so we've seen that Val Luton likes to include those characters in his narratives a lot. Yeah. Um, and so if you wanted, you know, I could write a, a, an a- academic film critic essay about how he, as the most disadvantaged character, he also has the most empathy. And so he's the one that can see through this power and corruption of the captain and is actually willing to be altruistic and sacrifice himself for the Well, it might just guy. be, it just might be that the, there's a hidden power that, that this small person, small in quotes, um, can take down this overbloated, control-centric, powerful, because the captain is powerful, that, that the powerful can be brought low by the, by the lowest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I can see that. Um, I think the interesting point about, ha- about having a voice, and he has a voice in the narration, but he doesn't have a voice in the reality of the, of the boat, but he is the key character who makes things change and move. He's the one 
who brings uh, he can't read either that's the other thing mm. uh, he can't speak and he can't read um, and or write so he can't communicate via writing some writing something down but he finds the evidence that says that the captain had lied about Tom's presence on the boat and he doesn't know what it is but he knows that the captain dropped it and he secretes it away and finally he decides that he will disclose that he will give it to someone who can read and that's when the secret is revealed so he's the one who decides on the timing and so forth of the revelation of the secret even though he doesn't know what the secret is so it makes him an interesting character because he is full of dichotomies and he is ultimately the one who gives up the most makes the most powerful action and changes things a poor thing about oh, Skelton Nags, which is interesting when I look at him, I just don't think of it. But he was a Shakespearean actor in London, hmm. and then of course he also he uh, when I was thinking about what he's like, he he also would play a Dickens character very well. I think yeah, he's kind of Dickensian in my yeah he would eyes. he definitely would, and so he ended up you know I'm sure coming to Hollywood because there was the opportunity to make money. Hollywood drained a lot of the talent out of London. Because there, you were just really kind of a tradesman, and you could make a living at it. But it wasn't like in Hollywood, where even a, even a minor player could make, you know, pretty decent money, and live a higher level of lifestyle. They had a thing in in Hollywood called the English Colony, <laughs> and so the people like Errol Flynn and David Niven and uh, C. Aubrey Smith, who's a great great favorite of mine. C. Aubrey Smith was a really tall, very distinguished, very craggy looking. Um, man, uh, actor, uh, and they all played like, um, they played like cricket together, and they were all like, you know, kind of hung, hung out, sort of like, uh, what do we call them, international districts of various countries, Koreatown or whatever, they had in, kind of in, the English town, and they played together and hung out together, and um, anyway, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if Skelton Nags was important enough to be part of that, but there certainly was a, a crew there for him to hang out with. And like so many others, he was a terrible alcoholic and he died of it when he was only 43. Sad. I know, very sad. Anyway, I, I do like him. And, I, and he's uh, this is the first uh, film he was in with Val Luton, and he subsequently was in uh, three more films. He was in Isle of the Dead, Bedlam, um, you know, all the horror ones. So... Um, we, we will be seeing Skelton Nags again very enjoyably. And uh, is there anything else we should say about this film in terms of the themes? I've got some really juicy uh, stories about the, the film itself and what happened around it, but uh, I don't want to cut us off from our discussion of the... I have to say it's one of my favorites. I know you don't like it as much as I do, but... Um... I still really liked it, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, but um... I... I Maybe maybe by the end you'll rank it as highly as I do. We'll see. Maybe one one of the things is I was surprised by it. it mm-hmm. I just it's like I'd never seen it before, and the acting and the development and the way I felt as I watched it it was very effective. I think on our lists of our favorite Val Luton films, like I ranked the Seventh Victim above Ghost Ship, and you ranked Ghost Ship above the Seventh Victim. So we're like within a, a step of each other. Um, I thought it was impactful too. There's a lot of moments that are going to stick with me and a lot of atmosphere that was created. Um, that's really good. Themes aside, it's a, it's a good watch. It's entertaining, um, creepy, a very cool film. 
So totally recommend about it. And around this time, as we said before, Val Luton had had several successes. Uh, Maybe none were ever as successful as Cat People in terms of money. Although they all made money, they all did well for the studio. And there's just something about the people he worked for who didn't really get it. And at this time, his boss, his direct boss, was Lou Ostro. And this guy, he really wanted... Luton to do what Universal was doing and they, they at this time the big popular thing was the monster rally is what they called it um, basically it was how many creepy monsters can you stuff into a film at the same time they really were trying to um, just capitalize on the names and the uh, of the creatures and so forth and the past glories these films were not good you know, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein or the Wolfman or, you know, I don't know even all the titles, but so-and-so versus so-and-so. They were just really not very good films, but they still made money, you know, and I think a lot of it was because they were stuffed down the American public's throat and they kind of didn't have a lot of else to watch. So when they got a Luton film, they were excited because it was really good. Um, and so, so essentially what Ostro was trying to do is he came up with another title, as we said earlier, um, the film production always started with the title. Luton was given the title, and then he proceeded to try to undermine the title as much as possible <laughs> <laughs> and not make it be what the title said. Right. And they kept trying to shove the title on to try to shove him into a box because he was so successful that they didn't have a lot of leverage over him <laughs> to make him change always because he always came in within his budget. You know, if he had gone back to them asking for more money or whatever, then they would have had some leverage over the content that he was producing. So anyway, the, the title that um, Lou Ostro came up with for Luton was They Creep by Night. Oh. Okay, so that's when he was trying to push. That one never went forward, and Luton didn't want to do it. So what he wanted to do was to, to propose that they make a sequel to Cat People. He really wasn't into it. The only reason he did that was he knew that was the only way he wouldn't have to make a movie called The Creep by Night. <laughs> and so, of course, the Muckety Mucks loved that because that was, you know, their biggest hit. And they figured, oh, we can just capitalize on this and make a whole bunch more money. They figured, oh, this will be a blockbuster. So, but the problem was, is right at that moment when they would start shooting is Simone Simone and Kent Smith, the stars, were not available. So they had to come up with something in the meantime. What happened was a lot of stuff went on. I don't know all the details. Not interesting. They came up with the title, The Ghost Ship. And they said, okay, make The Ghost Ship. And the reason they came up with that is because they had an old ship set lying around from a movie mm. they made in 1938, and they wanted somebody to use it because it was sitting there just lying around. Great. So they said, okay, we got this ship, The Ghost Ship, go. <laughs> And he proceeds to make a movie without any ghosts in it. <laughs> exactly. And Luton specifically said he basically he wrote this book with no go or this story with no ghosts in it. So you're like, you, you see the title and then you watch the movie and you're like, there's a disconnect here because <laughs> there are no ghosts. There's nothing. Again, you would have to sort of use an academic mind to come up with some kind of symbology of ghostness somehow. And basically it was. Luton, you know, just throwing shade on his bosses by the script that he wrote, probably while he was wearing his dog puke tie. Right. Right. So the film was released and it was doing well. It was doing well. It was popular. And as soon as it was released, 
Two playwrights who had sent in a script to Val Luton claimed that he plagiarized their script. And basically what had happened is he had scripts just piled all over his office, all these things people were always submitting, and Luton did not have time to read them. He did not look at them. He didn't need to. He had plenty of his own ideas. And so his secretary, desirous of cleaning up the office, took all the scripts and got rid of them, and I think she sent them back to the people who had sent them, which was a nice thing to do. But these were all unsolicited scripts that were sent in. So these playwrights said, well, we sent our script in, and he plagiarized it, and we want $700. That's now, not very much. That is not very much. Even by standards of 1943, that is not crazy. And Luton is indignant. And this is the kind, and this I can see is a little bit of a glimpse into his character that probably rubbed people the wrong way. He was pretty mulish in his temper and, and his attitudes towards things. Not always very flexible, at least not, you know, artistically, it sounds like he was pretty flexible. But anyway, so he goes into a meeting with his bosses and they say, which is totally weird to me, they ask him what he wants to do. Now, the studio heads, certainly today, would decide. They wouldn't like leave it up to someone of their employees to say, well, should we go to court or shouldn't we go to court? Luton went in there and said, I did not plagiarize. I'm not settling. We need to go to to trial. And they're like, okay, which is to me totally weird that would not happen today possibly because Luton wasn't paying the lawyers <laughs> that always changes things when I was practicing law that would happen all the time people would come in and they would be all on their principle and I uh, and I'm gonna and I wanna it's a principle thing it's not the money it's a principle thing <laughs> but then when they realized that you weren't gonna work for free and that possibly if they lost they could pay the other side's attorney's fees and you said, okay, I'll need a deposit of $10,000 for me to go ahead with this, and this, these are going to be the costs. All of a sudden, principal went let's right out settle. the window. Let's settle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so Luton drove them into the court, and, and basically the uh, script that the two playwrights had written was you know, somewhat similar, but, I mean, from what I've heard, it doesn't sound like it's a plagiarism case, but I don't know, I wasn't there. But basically their, their story was uh, about a cruise ship, not a merchant marine ship. And there's a passenger on it who accuses the captain of murder. The passenger can't get anybody to help them. Okay, that's, that's similar. But it turns out that the real captain was murdered and the killer took his place. That's not the same. That's not the same at all. And that's pretty crucial. Yeah. So anyway, these playwrights won. And RKO had to pull the picture out of circulation didn't exhibit it, and there was an injunction for years. And so this film is very little known because it didn't show for 50 years. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Until the copyright expired. Yeah, exactly. The copyright was was expired, and then it started being shown. It was heralded as a lost masterpiece. And I think it is quite excellent. And the loss of this court case and the fact that he had been found guilty, well, this is not a criminal court, so he's not really found guilty of anything. He just lost a civil case. But it feels like you're found guilty of plagiarism, right? And Luton being the very sensitive, highly sensitive individual that he was, he just crumbled. He actually became incapable of working. He wanted to get out of the business. I mean, he really had a breakdown over Mm it. He just lost it. And riding to his rescue was his aunt, Allah. So Allah Nazimova, who we talked about in the first episode at great length, who had been in the business 
for years and years and years and she's the one who'd been so tough on him when he was young she came in and she bucked him up she was both tender and tough with him it was like buck up buddy this is life this is tough and but there's also the you can do it you're valuable you're an artist you're a great artist and you need to get out there and she she brought him back to life as an artist well yeah that's a good relationship that is fantastic i mean i think that that was the thing that that showed that like he and nina and his daughter nina and that they would butt heads and they would have a very turbulent relationship because they're so much alike i think he and his aunt ala were a great deal alike and that that was probably that was the source of their strength in their relationship and their conflict wow that's so dramatic yeah i it makes sense that I've never heard about this movie. I thought it was kind of a nothing film. I had no idea that there was, or I had no idea that, that a whole court case happened. That's really dramatic. I know. It's, it's probably the, the peak of drama in Luton's, his career. That must have stunk really badly. To, oh, yeah. Well, because, I mean, it's so public. He's and plagiarizing, yeah. And, and publicly being, but again, he kind of asked for it. If he just settled quietly... Everything would have gone along. And, of course, that put him at a disadvantage politically with his bosses. Not because I didn't get any idea that they believed he plagiarized anything, but he cost them a lot of money. Right. And he cost them all the profits from the film. Now we're entering the last film in what I call Phase 1. Phase 1 is the golden age of Val Luton. These are his best films. And this is really the last film that, that, film that hits that. And it is Curse of the Cat People, which is the sequel, kind of. Kind of. Of uh, cat people. And he was able to make this next with his $150,000 budget because Simone Simone and Kent Smith were now available once again. And so, again, Curse of the Cat People hated the title, (laughs) hated the idea, really didn't want to do it, but it was better than having to do The Creep by Night, (laughs) in his opinion. And he didn't get to control the title even though he suggested it be a sequel. Yes. His uh, line was, the only curse is in the title. So there's no curse. There are no cat people. There, I think there is a kitten in it somewhere. There's a little kitten. The little girl gets a kitten at some point. And that's really kind of the... There's not even... Dynamite, uh, the, uh, the Black Panther isn't even in it. Anything like that. Yeah, I mean, Simone Simone is in it. That's it. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. Because essentially, it's the follow-up where at the end of Cat People, Simone Simone, the cat woman, who she actually turned into a cat, died. Kent Smith, her husband, and Jane Rudolph, these are the actors' actual names, they had bonded and they end up getting married. They have a child. It's their child, not Simone Simone's child. And they're living in a happy domestic bliss where the husband is continuing to design his ships. And I don't know, I don't remember if the wife, Jane Randolph, ends up, I guess it doesn't matter, except in my mind, whether she's still working or she becomes a housewife. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I can't remember either. Also, I'm going to have to try really hard not to mix up details with the bad seed, because we watch them kind oh, of near right. each other. And uh, and they're both that, about young girls. Totally uh, opposite young girls. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I, that makes total sense, because it is kind of the same kind of setup, right? Yeah. So essentially... Um, This is a very simple plot, so we're not going to have a lot of details to it. Basically, um, Val Luton wanted to call it A Girl and Her Friend. Terrible title. title. (laughs) But it does actually tell you what's going on. And so the thing is, is the little girl, and she's pretty adorable, she is very dreamlike, and she sees visions. She sees fairies. She sees creatures. And most importantly, she sees Simone Simone 
who died in the last movie. And, and Simone Simone comes like very much like Billy Burke as the good witch of the North does in The Wizard of Oz. Kind of, it's black and white, but she comes in a glowing shimmery, light, long shimmery, white robe. yeah, and she's always shimmery and beaut, just beautiful and angelic. And she keeps appearing to this little girl, and she's the only friend the little girl has. The little girl cannot make friends <laughs> with anyone, any child of her age, because she doesn't get them. Yeah, she doesn't understand what they're all about, and they make fun of her, and they're they're pretty mean to her. Why are children always mean in every movie? Because children are not always that mean. No, it's children true. can be very nice. You were very nice. Yeah. You were a child. You made friends. You always would like seek out the one who was sitting alone, who was kind of weird, and like make them your friend. Yeah. Be nice to them. <laughs> I was the Helen of uh, Jane Eyre. <laughs> you were. You kind of worked since you do. You were. You didn't talk about religion like Helen did. But anyway, so they're really mean to her, and she ends up having this imaginary friend, if you will. Well, is she imaginary? Isn't she? We don't know whether she could be the spirit of Simone Simone coming back. Yeah. In and... the world, in this world of this movie. And this little girl ends up accidentally going to this real creepy old house and making friends with this really old lady who'd been an actress in the old days. And she's got a, like a weird daughter, I yeah. guess, who like walks around in the background a lot. Yeah, it's kind of like Grey Gardens in a way. What happens is that there is a kind of storm. Well, I guess we should say that the father, Kent Smith, he can't tolerate this. Because he's terrified she's going to turn into a black leopard, I guess. Yeah. He's afraid that she's going to end up like Elena, Simone Simone's character, and be crazy and, and relive this whole black cat situation. And his wife is going, but she's not her daughter. She's my daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. The I know. little girl finds the photographs of Simone Simone, his former wife, which he's kept for some reason. Yeah, which kind of, that's an interesting <laughs> yeah. detail there. I don't think his, his current wife likes that very much. I think she makes it pretty clear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so anyway, he's always constantly, he's been pretty mean to her and kind of like shaking her and, and, and yelling snap at her. Snap out of it. Snap yeah. out of it. It's not true. Stop lying. Stop making up stories. And she's like, but it isn't a story. And she's such a big-eyed, sweet little girl. You're just like, God, you really get the sense of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I think during the movie we're like, why you got to be such a dick? Come on. Yeah, I mean, he was terrible. But what's interesting about this is that this apparently is a very autobiographical movie. It's probably, of all the movies, the one closest to Val Luton's heart mm. and his life because that was his relationship he was having with his daughter at that time. Mm. So Nina might not have been as ethereal as this kid and seeing things, but Nina had her own agenda. She was a young kid, her own agenda, her own point of view, her own way of doing things. And she would be very disobedient and go out and do what she wanted to do. And he, his reaction was to be more oppressive and to yell at her and to, you know, and to try to snap her out of it and be authoritarian. And, you know, his wife is like, calm down. I mean, it's just kind of like this dynamic in the movie. Calm down, take a chill pill. She's just a child, you know, this kind of thing. And um, he, and it really seems to be, again, to reflect back on his relationship with Alla Nazimova and probably her authoritarianism and his bucking her because then he would trample on her roses or do whatever and end up being sent to military school. So now he's got a daughter. And what happened is, in order to, to, to make things, I mean, he really did want the best for her. I mean, it wasn't like he was cruel because he didn't love her. But they ended up sending Nina to boarding school. Mm. Just like exactly what happened to him. But apparently in this case, it worked very well. They picked a good school. It wasn't a military school, first of all. Uh, and they, they did it because they were trying to 
find a way to nurture her and for her to be okay and have the discipline she needed because it she wasn't getting it in the way she needed it at home. Very interesting. There's this whole thing about a donkey. She just wanted a donkey. So she was go- going out and, and selling things to try to get money so she could buy a donkey. Because <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> get her funny. a donkey. So ultimately, they, they got her a donkey that lived out in the backyard in a, in a little corral. They had a big yard. I just thought that was a really funny story but it was like an example of her independence and her um determination and so instead of nurturing that loving it and he tried to tame it and so instead of trying to nurture it and then direct it he tried to tame it and he i think it it frightened him because he was frightened for her and um he and he reacted the way plus he was working all the time so it wasn't like he was there. So he didn't have a lot of patience. He was not a patient guy. His wife kind of tried to rein him in, but, you know. Anyway, so this film is a mirror of what was going on in his, in his relationship with his daughter. Interesting. And what happens in the film is there's a huge storm, and the little girl is always running out and trying to run to the, the old lady. And the old lady ends up dying and the little girl goes to the house, and, and there's this weird daughter there. And the issue with the daughter is, is her mother hates her. And the daughter's going, I never did anything to you. I loved you. I'm just trying to take care of you. And the, and the, and the mother's going, oh, I hate you. Well, I think it might be like a dementia thing where the mother like does, is like, you're not my daughter. And she's like, yes, I'm your daughter. Like, <laughs> Right. What happened with the old lady and her daughter, there's a terrible accident. And the old woman, I think it's a dementia thing too, where she believed that in her mind now that Barbara died when she was six. So this grown woman couldn't be her daughter. But Barbara didn't die. She, and, and so she thinks she's spying on her and trying to manipulate her. But it's not actually the case. But she's got this dementia because she somehow got it stuck in her mind that Barbara died. I think because she was so frightened. And also, I think she was responsible for the accident. And so there's also a guilt issue going on there. And so anyway... Um, Oliver does not like this, uh, Oliver's the father. He does not like this friendship with the old lady and, and the creepy daughter. And he tells her, uh, her, his daughter not to go there. But the daughter goes back anyway when there's this huge storm that goes on. And the daughter hates the little girl whose name is Amy. She hates Amy because the mother is giving her little gifts and jewelry and attention and love and all the things that she herself wants and should have and so she says i'm gonna kill you and all which is kind of a weird thing to yeah do to a kid but she's they had to get threatening tension and somehow exactly so what happens is is that um during the storm amy runs to the old lady's house and um she's climbing the stairs and they, they have all these weird creepy surreal elements and the, the daughter is there, and she's like, what are you doing here? Why are you coming into this house? I told you never to come here again. And she's coming up the stairs, threateningly, like she's going to choke this little kid. And, I mean, this is a part that kind of fails for me, because I don't really believe that, unless she's really insane, which I don't think she is. Well, Amy, all of a sudden, she looks over, and she sees Simone Simone interposed over this scary, threatening woman. This The total love, the pure love, and she's like, and she gives this love, and she opens completely to this vision. And then the young woman, Barbara, she's like totally transformed. 
Yeah, the little girl hugs her, and so instead of choking her, she hugs her hugs back. Hugs her back, yeah. And so it just changes everything. And then the father comes busting in because he's fo- followed her, and he takes her home, and they sit in the yard, and he goes, is she here now? And all of a sudden he understands, and he's, he, he accepts. And so he is willing to talk about this vision she's having and asks her if she sees this visionary creature, and, and that's kind of how it ends with his acceptance of, of her inner world. So that's how it goes. <laughs> I, I, this was not one of my very favorites. I do like the cast a lot. I like the little girl. I, li- I like the, the visuals of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very fairy-like. It's like a little fairy world. It's a pretty movie. And Sir Lancelot is in it. This is the last time we see him. Oh, yeah. He plays the house servant. Doesn't sing, but he does pass along wisdom. And calls her little miss a lot. In the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but at least he's in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Interesting because, I mean, I guess they didn't require him to make, like, a horror-horror movie. Or maybe he was like, yeah, this is a horror movie. Uh, well, well, it's horror in that he brings elements of that in Amy's inner world, every time you see anything that's really creepy or scary, it's always from Amy's point of view, the little girl's point of view. There's the backyard that lights up like a fairyland and the beautiful vision. Okay, that's not really horror, but it's otherworldly. But when she goes to the house and visits the old lady, it's always dark and creepy in there. It's just got that gothic mm-hmm. element to it. But And then there's the scene in the park when she's trying to run to her friend. And she hears, this is so weird, she hears the galloping of like the headless horsemen's. Hmm. There's, there's a whole myth that goes on in this town about the um, a horseman and the horseman snatches up children and right yeah and she hears it again in the snow and stuff so yeah right she's hiding behind a rock and she hears it coming closer and closer and closer and then a shadow sweeps over her um and then and in the old house the wind blows and and bangs the doors and you hear the wind blowing over her and it gets dark and but it's always from her point of view so it doesn't mean any of that is happening right but those are the kind of horror elements in it which is interesting and it does pretty good job of actually making tension even if it's not super like coherent or it's all clearly not real exactly so essentially when this film came out it came out in 1944 and i didn't realize that autism was being studied and to the extent it was in 1944 but it was Hmm. and so when this film came out it was shown to child psychologists and they would look at and they'd say that they saw an autistic element here, this kind of Asperger's issue with this child, that she had this in her life. She didn't understand the outer world. She didn't understand the cues of her peers, so she couldn't bond with them or understand them. Uh, She did like and get along well with the old lady, but the old lady was kind of demented. Yeah, well, and she just kind of took command of the situation and was like, oh, this, so that. Yeah, here, have some tea. Here's 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 a ring and, you know, all this sort of thing. And in a way that was interesting to her but it was kind of unusual so they thought that that was very interesting and Asperger's diagnosis was very new at the time they just really developed it and so one of the things that they noticed I think was very interesting is they noticed the way she smiled Hmm. and that that is like a symptom of Asperger's a very tight smile very closed mouth tight smile and what's so funny about it is is they never intended to characterize her that way yeah they, they didn't necessarily because the reason that she had that tight smile was halfway through the filming, she lost a front tooth. Oh. <laughs> and so they told her not to, not to open her mouth. <laughs> That's funny. And so I thought that was, that was really, really funny. 
that's not something you think about with child actors very often, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, the, the story about the old lady and, and her daughter and what happened, there was a, the accident on, on a bridge and a lot of that backstory, they flushed that out a lot more in the original, but they ended up cutting it. Mm-hmm. Probably because they need to get down to the 70 minutes uh, that is required for a Val Luton movie at the time. So it was pretty interesting kind of filming. And originally, uh, this was a whole different director that Val Luton had to hire because uh, his regular people were not available. And the director was, uh, name was Gunter von Frisch, a German guy. And he had only things he had done before were documentaries. So he hadn't actually ever made a film film before. And he was like probably the worst possible director to be on a film like this where they film in two to three months, chop, chop, get it done. So anyway, where, where you're in a schedule where it's move it along, got $150,000, got to get moving. And this film started to go over budget, which was not okay. And Val Luton had never gone over budget. And, but he was, he was really kind of the quintessential artiste. And he's all about like the lighting and getting the lighting and the and so all those fairy scenes, which are beautiful, fantastic. He did all of those, hmm. but the problem was he wasn't moving it along, and they had hardly any of it filmed. Luton got very concerned, so he ended up being replaced by Robert Wise, who became available, and Robert Wise just pushed it through. He got it done. Um, using the footage, footage that had already been done, but none of the exposition, none of the plot, none of the story had been filmed. So Wise took it over and he got it done. So, so it's, uh, there are two directors credited on this. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, so it was, it was successful, successful film. Uh, Luton's films never bombed at the box office. He always did okay. That's well, a, well some, some of them have bombed. <laughs> they, they, they may be didn't do as well as was hoped. I don't think any of them ever bombed. I mean, certainly in this this first part of his career, it's a testament to how good at creating a compelling story he was versus like needing to, to do the genre. Um, because this is not a, a genre film in any way to me. Part, and the compelling part of it is really the, the father being so angry with the child. That's the horror. All the other stuff is atmospheric, but that's really the horror because you're, you're like... Wow, because she's so little, and he's so angry, and they really do it well, but not in a way that, I mean, you know, having come out of a family where I had an angry father who, who would blow up, and you can tell this father cares about the child, and, and he's angry out of his own fear for her, um, and so it isn't nasty, yeah. you know, so just wanted to say that for anybody who's sensitive on those issues, but yeah, so that was the uh, end of what I, I call his golden period. The next piece where we move in he is still at RKO but Luton is starting to chomp at the bit and he really wants the opportunity to move into the A-list and to do something more so he he gets an opportunity to do something that would be I don't know I wouldn't call it A-list but I guess they kind of considered an A-list was a war film called Mademoiselle Fifi and there is no horror involved and it is uh, a story that Luton had wanted to do for a long time it's based on a, a story by Guy de Maupassant and so that begins what I call phase two, which is sort of his other styles that uh, he did at RKO. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand